Hey, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that together we can make it happen. I'm Manda Scott, co-founder of Accidental Gods, that place on the net where art meets activism, politics meets philosophy, and science meets spirituality. My guest this week got in touch with me in the middle of last year to talk about one of my all-time favourite subjects, regenerative agriculture. I genuinely believe that this is one of the absolute keys to the transformation of humanity as a species, to our reconnection with the web of life, which is, after all, what the wider Accidental Gods Project is all about, and to the ways we feed ourselves while drawing down carbon from the air into the soil. Navona Gallegos is a regenerative ecologist who has studied with some of the biggest names in this field and then put it into practice on the land in New Mexico. She knows so much about soil, about what it is, about how to care for it, which is the foundation of everything that we need to do. When I first spoke to her a few months ago, she was planning on buying some land. And when we recorded this interview in the middle of December, she had just bought it, which felt so propitious and just beautiful and a perfect time to be recording a new podcast for a new year. So, people of the podcast, please welcome Navona Gallegos. So, Navona Gallegos, welcome to Accidental Gods Podcast. And thank you for calling in all the way from New Mexico. I bet it's warmer there than it is here, but that wouldn't be hard. I think probably the South Pole is warmer there than it is here at the moment. But I gather, in all your wonderful warmth and New Mexicanness, that you have just bought a farm. Is that right? I have. Tell us about your farm. So it's a small farm. It's 15 acres. It's on the Rio Ojo Caliente, which is about an hour north of Santa Fe. Yeah, there's a wetland and river area, and then there's an area below the acequia, which is our sort of ditch system that's more grassland, and then there's another level a little bit higher that's very dry desert land. And how has it been farmed up till now? So I feel really lucky. I feel like this land really called me in because the person who was there for the last two years is a friend, and he was growing hemp. Before that, it was left fallow for many years, and sort of the long history of it was that it was part of a Spanish land grant hundreds of years ago that got subdivided and subdivided into smaller and smaller chunks over the last couple hundred years. But it's not been drenched in industrial chemistry. It hasn't. Some things, which yeah. is very good. Okay, so we'll come back to that in a bit because it sounds amazing and I would really like to know why growing hemp is a good thing. But before we do that, let's explore a little bit about Navona and how you came to be the kind of person who would want to buy a farm in New Mexico. So what's your background with respect to agriculture, regenerative agriculture, and ecology? So I'm a native New Mexican. I was born in Santa Fe, and my ancestry is mostly Iberian, Spanish, and came to this land that's now called New Mexico on both sides of my family in the 1500s. So I have deep roots in this land and different different parts of New Mexico, some east, some more central. And um, I grew up riding horses and ranching. My um, family had a cattle ranch. And so I was introduced to 
the Kavira Coalition and regenerative ecology, holistic management, regenerative grazing pretty early on in life. Um, so that's always sort of been there. And I, I've always had this appreciation for, for tending land. And then um, New Mexico is this really brittle environment. It's so beautiful and rugged here. And as climate is changing, you know, over the last 20 years, I remember 20 years ago, expecting monsoons from July through August, every afternoon at four o'clock, it would pour. And now it rains, you know, last summer, I think we got three or four rains during that period. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So it's gone from daily to monthly, more or less. Pretty much. Cheapers. Yeah. Yeah. So it's changed a lot. And so you can really, it's so dramatic here, um, how, how quickly land use affects the affects the whole landscape. And we, we want to talk about regenerative agriculture, but I'm interested in the politics of that because for me, that's climate change is here. It's, it's happening on our doorstep. Is that the impact that it has for people in New Mexico? Or is it too politically, too much of the third rail for that to be the case? You know, it's funny because it's readily obvious to a lot, a lot of people. There's some amazing folks, the Healthy Soil Working Group here, based in New Mexico. They're starting to work across the U.S. And um, they were able to pass some legislation last year um, called the Healthy Soil Act and is to make a budget for doing regenerative soil health practices on different lands, which is awesome. And they said they had to take the word carbon out of everything. They couldn't say the C word what? in order to get it. <laughs> is this coming down from Trump? Or was this just locally, it was just too toxic? Yeah, it was local. Wow. And New Mexico is not, you know, we're, we're sandwiched between Texas and Arizona. And so it's not, it's a lot more moderate and science-based than either of our neighbors. <laughs> But, Gosh, that must be fun. Yeah. <laughs> but better than not being moderate and science-based. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you know. We're, we're working with what we've got. You have a really good grounding in what regenerative agriculture is. And I think it's part of one of the core and key features that we're going to need if we're going to pull ourselves away from the cliff edge to which carbon may be pushing us because we're allowed to say carbon here. I'm going to say it again for the fun of it. Carbon. There we go. We can do this if we all understand what it is, how it works, and how we can do it. And I'm hoping that you are the person to explain that. So just a tiny bit more about Navona. You did a degree in ecology, am I right? I did, yeah. I went to the University of Virginia and I studied terrestrial ecology and focused on land use ecology. And was that a holistic ecology program? Was it designed to bring you to a regenerative agriculture mindset or did you have to layer that on afterwards? Yeah, the latter. Um, it's amazing. I, I thought it was, you know, it was a good program and it was rigorous. And um, most of what I've learned about fungi, especially, I have learned after graduating and um, especially from Elaine Ingham. She's really the soil microbiology guru at the moment. Okay, and we'll put a link to to her pages on the show notes. But for the people who probably aren't going to be able to afford one of her courses, can you give us an outline of how regenerative ecology or regenerative agriculture 
what it is and how it differs from what the mainstream may have thought and may be moving away from, I hope, by now? Yeah, I use the term regenerative ecology rather than regenerative agriculture, just because I think that we need to step into thinking of ourselves as part of the ecosystem that we're in, rather than the the agricultural approach of setting aside some part of the Gaia to produce food just for humans. Yeah. Um, because that hasn't worked. And we can see, you know, I just learned recently that Sahara in Africa is um, the area where farming began in Africa. Yeah. Yep. It didn't used to be a desert. I think agriculture is really borrowing from our future and we're, we're running out of credit there at this point. There are all these practices like tilling that create a disturbance. And, you know, what happens when you till is you break up all the mycelium, all the fungi connections and all the aggregates, these glues that create structures in the soil. And the bacteria who are in the soil sense this disturbance, which is a lot like what happens in our biome if we have a stress, you know, stressful atmosphere, if we have a lot of cortisol in our biome, and then things that were symbionts become parasites and start eating the host and trying to reproduce and jump ship. You mean in our, our own personal gut biome and, and body biome? Yeah. That if we're stressed, then we get an, an overgrowth of the wrong bacteria, is what you're saying. Is that exactly, right? Exactly. Exactly. And so the same thing happens on a large scale in soil. And we can think of soil as the, the stomach of the earth. So plowing it is the equivalent of blasting ourselves with steroids? Pretty much, because we break up all these connections and that sends a signal to the bacteria in the soil that um, the ship is sinking and it makes all this stable carbon. And I can talk about that more, how it becomes stable and fungi available. And the bacteria will eat it up and there'll be this big flush of available nutrients. And we can imagine how our predecessors in river valleys would see this flush of plant growth, especially earlier successional plant growth, which is um, like the grasses that we use for our grain crops. Um, and I'll talk about succession more too. But, but yeah, so it's this sort of short-term boost. And, but what it's doing is it's destroying these hundreds and thousands of year old structures in the soil that allow nutrient cycling at a, at a pace that allows sustainable plant growth. Right. So the old way is we plough the land and then we get a bit of a, a frantic overgrowth from whatever we sow, which is mostly grasses. But over time, the soil erodes and then we have to either go somewhere else or try and create artificial circumstances that will grow as if the soil were as good as it used to be, which is why we're using artificial fertilisers. Is that more or less where traditional farming is at? Yeah, basically. And um, traditional farming, and it's, it's interesting calling it traditional farming because this you know, so-called conventional way of farming is only a couple hundred and really more like 70 years old. But not if the Sahara is where agriculture started, then, then that didn't do very much good for the soil where it started. So we weren't piling on fertilisers then, but we were obviously creating soil loss a very, very long time ago, right at the start of the, what we might call loosely the agricultural revolution. Yeah, I think I was thinking of, you know, this 
synthetic fertilizer input type agriculture. But yeah, for the last couple thousand years at least. Yeah. Okay. So so up to date, the synthetic fertilizer style of agriculture is the one that is still hegemonic around the world. It's the one that we're still trying to impose on people who haven't taken it on, on board yet. And it's the one that people are still arguing for in Western industrial, semi-agricultural nations. So given that that is destroying the soil, and also my understanding is that it produces plant growth that looks big and produces good yields if all you're measuring is the tonnage, but the actual nutrient value of the plants that are produced is massively reduced, even compared to 100 years ago, before we started using the fertilizers. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, so I think at this point I should dive into what soil is. Yes, good idea. Because that once we understand what soil is, then we can see how food, you know, plant and, and then animals who eat those plants, how the nutrient content is different and, and why. Um, yeah, so soil is not the same as dirt. Dirt is just the mineral. Um, we can think of soil as a combination of four different components. The first would be the mineral, which is sand, silt, and clay. The second is organic matter, which is you know bodies of plants and animals and other organisms, and then aggregates, which are these glues that fungi and bacteria create that make structure in the soil so that gas can move through the soil and liquid can move through the soil. And then there are the organisms in the soil, fungi, bacteria, nematodes, protozoa, plant roots, microarthropods, macroarthropods, spiders. Uh, you can think of an arthropod as an insect, basically. And there are tiny ones that you can't see with the naked eye and then some that you can see all the way to the, the ones we see every day. Yeah, and then the fourth part of soil that we think about are the abiotic factors. So like the chemical and physical factors that are dictated by climate, altitude, temperature, rainfall. And um, those abiotic factors are very much dictated by the soil organisms. So when we're working with soil, we're working with the organisms and we're not trying to get rid of the so-called bad organisms, but we're just creating the conditions for the good organisms to do what they do because they are the ones who bio, who terraform the soil to allow gas exchange, to allow water to soak in. They're the ones who are really dictating what's going on in soil. So there's a lot of emphasis in conventional or traditional agriculture on working with the mineral and adding different amendments and things. And um, it's sort of a racket because in any teaspoon of just mineral dirt anywhere on the planet, there are all the necessary minerals for plants to grow. Yes, but also I, I am surrounded by farmers who have soil tests done once every couple of years and then the guys tell them what to throw on the land. So why are they not picking it up if it's there? So what's happening is that those minerals might be there, but the biology that allows us us as in animals and then also plants to take up those minerals isn't present. So that's where fungi comes in. We can have terrestrial life because of fungi. Um, fungi do this amazing magic where they strip atoms off of rocks and turn them into bioavailable nutrients. And so, yeah, we wouldn't 
be here talking about this without fungi. And the way that they do that, a few different ways. The main way that fungi do this is through mycorrhizal fungal relationships. Mycorrhizal fungi are the fungi who partner symbiotically with plant roots, and they absolutely need a plant host. They don't survive without living plant roots feeding them. They partner with plant roots and make a physical connection either inside of the root, inside the cell wall, or around the root like a sheath, and they trade. So the plants photosynthesize, they draw carbon, carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, they do photosynthesis, they turn that carbon into sugars and carbohydrates, and plants will feed anywhere from 30 to 90% of the carbon that they draw from the atmosphere to their mycorrhizal fungal allies. And they're trading for water, for macronutrients like nitrogen, potassium, phosphorus, and also micronutrients like boron or magnesium. And um, if they don't have these allies, then they're not getting those micronutrients at all. I think this is really important that the plants cannot take in the minerals and the nutrients that they need and that then we want to gain for them by, by eating them if they don't have this relationship with the mycorrhiza that works both ways. And am I right in my understanding that it's principally those mycorrhiza that build soil in the times where we think we want to draw carbon in from the atmosphere and turn it into soil? They are an integral part of doing that? Absolutely. Yeah, mycorrhizal fungi are um, responsible for most of the carbon sequestration in old growth soils. Most of that carbon is in mycorrhizal fungal bodies, like the, the actual fungi, or in these structures that they make, like humic acids, which are these incredibly long, complex carbon structures that science doesn't fully understand yet. Here at the Los Alamos labs, they're studying them because these lattices defy our understanding of physics at the moment. We don't understand how these lattices of carbon can transport gases and and liquids the way they do. But they're an integral part of what healthy soil is. Yeah, and they, so these humic substances are emergency food and, um, and carbon storage. And so they're food for fungi. So fungi create these long, these long chains of carbons. Right, right. So like a squirrel burying nuts, they're creating these things so that when there's less sun, they can still survive. Yeah, and so there's this flux of carbon, you know, that's always going on with respiration and photosynthesis. But then once carbon enters these humic substances and other big aggregates like that, it becomes stable and it'll just stay there in the soil for thousands of years. And that's how we draw carbon out of the atmosphere. And okay, so it genuinely stays there because I had the, I was under the impression that it was part of a cycle that it would come in and then it would be transformed into something else, a new plant or a new bit of fungus or a new bacterium, and that that would then be cycled through and that it, then it would be released back at some point quite soon. But what, if it is thousands of years, then if we build soil depth now, it's it's going to stay there. It's not a short-term proposal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There are all these different estimates of how much carbon we can sequester per acre per year. And really what a lot of people are saying, like um, Dr. David Johnson talks about this, that really our potential for carbon sequestration is nearly infinite because we can keep going deeper with soil and we can keep going up 
with soil. Yeah, we're not ever going to have too much soil. It's not like we're going to reach a ceiling. I suppose if we get to the level where the atmosphere peters out, but it's not going to happen because the atmosphere will move outwards. As If we could just grow the earth by a centimetre all the way around, we would have solved our carbon problem. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a centimetre or I just read a paper that said there's some places in Australia where they found 40 metres of soil. Wow, 40 metres of soil. That's astonishing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, here on the Great Plains, on Turtle Island, we had, you know, three, four meters of topsoil before colonizers came and started. And now, now it's a dust bowl and there's nothing, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And all that soil is, I mean, all of that is either, you know, has volatilized into the atmosphere or... Gone down a river into the sea. Okay, so what we want to do is help these mycorrhizal fungi. And I do they make symbiotic relationships also with bacteria? Are the fungi and the bacteria in the soil are in relationship as well? They're definitely in relationship. Yeah, everyone, you know, everyone in the soil is in relationship. The mycorrhizal fungi are mostly in, you could say, direct relationship with the plants. Um, but there are other fungi that we think about as well. And those are the decomposers or the saprophytes. And they're the ones who are able to turn lignin, you know, the woody structures and trees and... And, uh, and straw and things, yeah. Yeah, so straw is cellulose. Bacteria can decompose cellulose. And there's some bacteria, very few, that can decompose lignin. Um, the fungi are able to decompose lignin. And that's why we don't just have piles of lignin on this planet. And why we grow mushrooms on dying trees or dead trees. Yeah, and so all of that decomposition, or we could even think of it as composition because they're turning often these smaller smaller molecules into larger molecules um, going on with all the decomposers, the bacterial decomposers and the fungal decomposers. And so they're very much in relationship. You know, they're exchanging nutrients and eating each other. Bacteria are constantly eating fungi, fungi are taking up bacteria. I also wanted to mention as far just backtracking to how we turn mineral dirt into, into something that's bioavailable. They're a small class of plants. It's about 10% of plants that we call early succession species, or often they're called weeds. And obviously we know that weeds, like you know, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, they're just plants that are growing where we don't think they ought to be growing. But yes. Yeah, but so these plants have these fungi inside of their cells. So rather than the mycorrhizal fungi that are on the root systems, they have fungi inside of their cells that create acids that they'll ooze into the soil and they can strip atoms off of rocks. And so in these really disturbed systems where we've decimated all the mycorrhizal fungi, the weeds so-called weeds, are actually the most nutrient-dense plants there. Right. So can you walk us through what happens when somewhere like the Great Plains on Turtle Island, which had four or five, however many metres deep of soil, and people come along who don't understand how to maintain that and manage to turn it into a dust bowl, what is it that we do that stops that soil from being living and from growing? that means that we end up reducing it virtually to nothing besides plowing? Because it can't be just plowing. Yeah, so mostly we're attacking, I, I guess we're attacking the plant roots because that's really where the soil building starts is with plant roots. So plants are like the puppet masters and they know exactly what nutrients they want and need when they want them. And 
we've never been able to guess what they need, you know, based on, you know, it's very crude when we're adding fertilizers. Um, but so the plants are dictating which fungi grow where, which bacteria grow where, and then which protozoa and nematodes, which are microscopic animals, come and eat those fungi, and then poop, and the plants take up those nutrients from the nematode and protozoa poop. Anyway, this whole cycle is going on, and if we till, we break up all the mycorrhizal connections, and um, if we overgraze, which is the main other culprit of soil degradation on the plains, especially in grasslands. Um, basically, the more, you know, if we overgraze, then plants just don't have the photosynthetic parts above ground to feed their roots, and so the roots shrink. Right. So then you end up with the grasses that can survive with very, very tiny roots, which over here tend to be ryegrasses, which are pretty grim when you're trying to graze horses. Is that the same with you? You end up with short-rooted grasses when you should have very, very long-rooted things? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's this relationship with grasses and grazers where if grazers are being moved by predators in a biodiverse ecosystem, then the grazers will take one bite of a grass and that triggers the grass to know, okay, so I need to send more nutrients into the into the root system. If you cut off about 30% of the top of your grass, then it'll send a flush of nutrients into the, into the root zone. And that'll just jumpstart nutrient cycling. But then if that grass gets you know, three more bites and is tiny, then it just doesn't have the photosynthetic parts to do that. And the root system will just die off and become short enough to reflect how short it is above ground. Okay. So under holistic grazing principles or if we just left everything to itself the the grazing animal whatever it is would take a bit of a bite the plant would have a stress response presumably do its nutrient cycling so that it could grow back to where it was and the animals would have moved on because there are mountain lions or tigers or whatever making sure that they're not all grazing the same grass day after day after day so the grass gets to grow up and it gets to send really deep roots right, right, right down. Pictures I've seen are showing roots two or three metres deep in some species. So they're going down to the rock layers and able to bring up the rock-bound minerals that they need. Have I got that right? Yes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and grasses do form mycorrhizal relationships. And um, there are just these massive, used to be these massive mycorrhizal nets all across all these grasslands. Okay. And that holds the soil depth against floods and winds and everything that might be turning it into dust and taking it away. Yeah, because the main thing that happens in a living soil is that you have these glues. And so if you have a hillside that has been overgrazed or plowed or both usually compared to a hillside that has living soil, um, when it rains, all of that rain is going to just wash all the soluble nutrients, all the dirt and minerals that aren't held in these glues off of the off of the okay. one that doesn't have living soil. And on the one that does have living soil, it'll just sink in. And often, you know, soil is like a sponge for water. And so that water often won't even make it to the bottom of the hill. So the ability of your land to soak up water then becomes quite an important index of the life in your soil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's also filtering that water too. So right now we've got water that's full of 
nitrogen fertilizers and just tons of other soluble nutrients washing into our waterways and then creating algal blooms. But the soil will actually, and the aggregates in the soil will catch those soluble nutrients. And so what you get at the end of, um, you know, either underneath the soil seeping into groundwater, or if you're on an incline going into surface water, like a pond or something, what you end up with is very clean water if you have living soil. Okay. And we want clean water, definitely. So given that we are where we are and agricultural practices for however long have been creating dirt rather than soil, living soil, how can we begin to reverse that process, create living soil and draw in carbon from the atmosphere? The good news is that the Gaia is on our side (laughs) on this one. In a way, we don't have to do anything. (laughs) If we stop messing with the system, it'll start moving through succession, which is, you know, like a very crude definition of succession is just the process um, of species structure change in an ecosystem over time. And basically what's happening is you go from less biodiverse, less nutrient cycling, less nutrient density, um, to more nutrient density, more biodiverse, more carbon sequestration. And what that looks like is, you know, like a totally nuked agricultural field to an old growth forest. That's sort of the the trajectory, especially in temperate regions. But we kind of want to feed people in the middle of that because we're not going to persuade people to do this if they think they're going to starve as a result. Yeah. And so the thing is, if we just leave it alone, it'll become old growth forest or whatever climax community can happen there. But it'll take thousands of years, which is why regenerative agriculture or regenerative ecology we can we can move that succession along you know in the course of four or five ten years depending on rainfall okay so how would we do that if you you had your 15 acre farm or i read of somebody the other day who had 1200 acres in brazil that had been completely just devastated by overgrazing how would you set about returning it to something that's got living soil and is of net benefit to the overall ecosystem? So I think the steps that we go through are, the very, very first step is to stop and listen and to acknowledge the consciousness of the organisms and the beings that are there um, because they, they hear you, you know, and they've often been ignored or trampled by humans. And so there's this, sort of interesting process where they start to hear you and they're like, oh, oh, really? Okay, we're on the same side. And it's really magical what, what happens after that if you really, you know, um, set intentions and listen. And I think that there's a lot of, you know, there's biodynamic farming where there's tons of intention setting and they get really great results. And just from a biological point of view, I think a lot of what biodynamic farming is doing is not is not what's actually happening there. I think the intention setting is what's the magic. Oh, really? You think burying the cow's horns and things might be less important than the intent with which you bury the cow's horn? Is Am I hearing you saying that? I think so, yeah. Yeah, because burying the, you know, the cow's horn with the, their organs in it and stuff, and that basically you're creating a bacterial flush in this small area, and we want fungi. Yeah, so I don't, I don't think that that input is, is really what's like 
changing those systems. And another tenet of biodynamic farming is that they leave it alone a lot more than other farming practices. Right. So, um, but yeah, so I always want to just emphasize listening to the land, noticing what's going on. You know, like that's the first step in any permaculture approach is just to observe and listen and um, notice where water's going, notice where erosion's happening. And then, um, hang, on, hang on a second, before we go to the next step, how long, if I had just bought 15 acres somewhere and I was wanting to do this, how long would you recommend that I sit with the land and listen to it? So my intention is to spend three days listening and exploring. Okay. And then I'm going to start interacting, but the listening process never ends. You know, we're always watching for feedback and and noticing what happens. And, you know, we have this urgency to growing food and to building ecosystems, but there is definitely something to be said for slowing down because we can go in with these ideas and do a ton of terraforming and moving. And then there's always something we haven't thought of. Yep. That the land would probably have shown us if we'd taken the time to sit and look at it and be with it. Yeah. And so if we can slow down and rather than think that we're going to build a farm in a season and think that we're going to really build it over five years, then ultimately we'll be much better off. And then presumably there's a difference between whether you're going to have holistic grazing, which you will explain in a moment, as part of your land or whether it's going to be simply crops. Not that that's necessarily simple, but could you talk us through both options of that? Sure. Well, one of the tenants of really robustness in any system, but especially in ecological systems, is diversity. So every single organism, every different species is doing something different. They're cycling different nutrients, they have different needs, and the more biodiversity we have, the more redundancy we have. If some new so-called pest, I hate to use the word pest, but if some new species comes in and starts to wipe out another species, then we have all these other folks who are doing similar nutrient cycling, making other things available. So anyway, that tenant of diversity applies on all the different scales, whether we're talking bacterial or macrofauna. Okay. Yeah. So so diversity builds resilience is exactly. And so when we're talking about soil, if whether we're planning on growing vegetables, you're not wanting to introduce grazing animals like cows or goats, you still want animals present because all these, everyone is contributing and you're not going to have a healthy ecosystem without animals, period. Um, You're also not going to have a healthy ecosystem without any part of the trophic level. Like if you take out the protozoa and nematodes, even if you have the fungi and bacteria, it just won't work. Okay. Yeah, I want to address that. And I want to just backtrack a little bit because there are these, yeah, these these steps to getting the animal and the plant diversity present. And so the first is to address your water and where it's going. Um, So notice if the water is eroding in areas, if it's pooling up in areas, and mostly what we're trying to do is slow it, sink it, and spread it. Slow it, sink it and spread it. So slowing it, you know, as water is moving over the surface before we have living soil, it's just taking all of the mineral, all the little plants, everything out with it. And so if we can just slow it down, just the velocity 
then we get much less erosion. By building little dams or how, how would you slow it? Yeah, so this is where I think permaculture is spot on with the swales and the dams and different waterworks like that. Okay. Bringing back beavers, I gather, has happened quite a lot in the UK and they're creating extraordinary new wetlands in the places where they've been reintroduced just by building really quite small by beaver standards dams. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing you can't do that everywhere, but it's it's really exciting where it's happened. That's so cool. <laughs> that is so neat. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're working on beaver reintroduction around here and it's a bit of a struggle because people have this idea of property ownership and are resistant to beavers, which is too bad because beavers are absolutely a keystone kingdom or a keystone species and hook up the entire ecosystem around them. Um, but we can do the same thing. It would not exactly the same thing that beavers do, obviously, but we can do something similar by making little dams and by doing swales and um, slowing that water. And then once that water sinks in, then it provides the, the moisture for plant growth and then for for fungal, for bacterial growth, and start starts nutrient cycling. Yeah, so the first step is just to address your water. And then one thing we want in any system is no bare soil ever. So basically, we're trying to help meet our own needs by growing food and clothing and shelter. Um, and we do that by meeting the soil organism's needs. And so they need cover from the UV rays from the sun. Mulch also allows water to stay longer. It doesn't evaporate as fast. It makes this little temperature cushion where the temperature fluctuation isn't as great. And so the organisms can thrive better there. And it's also food. And so, again, we're thinking diversity. So we want a diversity of mulches. We want lots of different wood, you know, wood chips from different types of trees, hardwoods and softwoods. We want different straws, haze, you know, um, kitchen scraps. Okay. I'm imagining doing that here and then fending off an entire city's worth of rats. But other than the kitchen scraps, that's sounding really good. So, that, But this is also, presumably you can do living mulches yeah. as well as... Yeah. And so ideally what you want to end up with is 100% photosynthetic ground cover. So 100% ground covered in different plants. And then if there's any bare spots, you cover that with mulch. And hopefully within a couple seasons or less, you've got grasses and other plants growing through that. And that becomes photosynthetic cover. Um, yeah. And so again, we want diversity in all the plant groups. There's this tenant, um, or maybe you've heard of the three sisters. Yes, I have, but I guess quite a lot of our listeners won't, so please tell us. So the three sisters are these three plants, corn, beans, and squash, that a lot of Native people here in the Southwest traditionally grow together, um, literally right together in a little clump. And the beans climb up the corn, and the squash is there sort of as ground cover, and when we're talking about diversity in our plants, corn, beans, and squash is much closer to a monocrop than to the diversity that we're hoping for. But I think of it as this um, this little technology that's been handed down because corn is a grass 
squash is a forb and beans are legumes. And so, and that's, that's the key to how we want to approach um, planting. We want grasses, forbs, and legumes together. So the legumes fix nitrogen, or rather they feed soil bacteria who fix nitrogen from, from the atmosphere. And they're the only ones who can do that. So if we don't have legumes, um, then we're not getting that nitrogen from the atmosphere. And the forbs are also cycling nutrients and making other things available. The grasses are doing the same. And grasses are um, also good at accumulating phosphorus. And then we have the mycorrhizal fungi connecting all three and they're getting to trade phosphorus for nitrogen, for magnesium. Um, and so the corn beans and squash are three sisters I think of as sort of this, we don't literally just want to do corn beans and squash, but we want to use that as like a, a blueprint for the classes of plants we want to plant. So we want like, you know, 15 plus types of grasses, 15 plus types of forbs. And forbs are just uh, leafy plants. So forbs are easy to, to cover. Hemp is a forb. Okay. And things that we tend to eat quite a lot of. And so I remember reading Gabe Brown's Dirt to Soil. And he had something. I, I named my little patch a chaos garden. I'm not sure if he called it that. But he basically just went out with handfuls of mixed seeds and threw them around. And then when his wife wanted something for dinner, he just went out and cut whatever was ready. And generally speaking, he had no idea what it was going to be in advance, which must have been an entertaining culinary challenge for Mrs. Brown. But it sounded really exciting. But it was on a garden scale. This is not on a farm scale mm -hmm. where you where you're having to individually gather each individual plant separately. So if you're on a farm scale, well, how do you get this level of biodiversity in a season? So are you asking how, how do you manage this level of biodiversity for convenience or how do, you, how do you get this biodiversity? Both. How do you get it and how do you make it um, at least financially breaking even? Yeah, so the latter gets a little complicated and it's something we each have to figure out. But getting that biodiversity on a farm is really the same thing. Like we, for the last two years, we farmed 10 acres and we pretty much did what you were talking about, which is just broadcasting tons of different seeds, just throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks. Yeah, and it was a lot of work to harvest, but we didn't spend any money on any fertilizer, any inputs whatsoever. Wow. And and did your soil improve by any of the metrics that we would measure, like water retention or soil depth or any of those things? Or was it not long enough? Yeah, so we took um, a soil sample before we got started and then a soil sample in the fall, and we increased our soil um, organic matter 1% which is actually, again, 1% doesn't sound like a lot just, you know, as a number floating around, but we're usually talking about like 1% to 3% wow. organic matter. So this is 1% of its original value is 1% of the total content of the soil. So in effect, you've doubled it if it was 1% before and it, you've added another 1%. That's a 100% increase in your organic matter. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's extraordinary, actually, because most farming systems are reducing organic matter year on year yeah and it was 
So to be able to increase it 100% is huge. And, and it was simple, really. Like we just got lots of different seeds of lots of different types of plants and broadcast them and then did a ton of mulching and our usual watering. And, um, and then we just explore, <laughs> you know, we'll just, you know, set aside a day to, well, with the hemp you have to go through because we're growing hemp for CBD. So you have to go through and find the males. Um, so as we were doing that, just walking down these rows, looking for the, the males in our hemp crop, we're just also making note of where the squash are, where the, you know, where different folks are and just harvesting stuff as they come up, which is fun. Yeah. So just because I'm finding this fascinating, and I apologize if anybody listening isn't, but I'm trying to imagine doing this. So you were broadcasting random seeds, but you knew you definitely had some hemp in there. And then you have to cover it up or you have, uh, uh, here certainly, we would have every pigeon within a 20 mile radius would be on our field eating the seeds and then it would be dead for the rest of the year. So you cover it up with something that's deep enough that the wildlife that feasts on seeds isn't just having all its Christmases and birthdays come together. <laughs> well, that did happen a lot. What's going on here? You know, we're, we have to share, basically. And so, especially in the Southwest, where we're in these really, really, you know, we have miles of just dead dirt around us. And when we start to bring a little patch to life, you're going to lose a lot of it. So, I mean, we just, you know, for garden scale, we tell people to plant 40-some squash plants if they want a couple squash plants. Yeah. And so I'm also interested, I remember listening to a webinar at some point, I think it was Dan Kittredge, saying that the spinach grown nowadays in, in industrial systems had something like 3% of the iron content of the spinach when we were kids, certainly when I was a kid. Um, the kind of Popeye, eat your spinach, it'll make you fit spinach. Mm-hmm. Because what we've done is pour fertilizers on that get the plants to grow, but they haven't built the relationships with the mycorrhiza and the fungi that go down and and bring up the the other minerals and present them in a bioavailable form. So I'm wondering when you did your mass scatter and you were getting doubling your organic matter in the soil, were you also getting more nutrient density in the vegetables and and other things that you harvested? Yeah, definitely, especially year two. And it was really fascinating to see what seeds germinated year two that didn't germinate the first year. Oh, interesting. Okay. You think they'd lay dormant or do you think they'd come in? Both, but there are definitely some that lay dormant um, that were just waiting for right. the, you know, they do this quorum sensing where they sense what bacteria and other nutrients, yeah, not the bacteria and nutrients, but, you know, they sense what's in their environment. As a seed, as this little hard thing in the ground is sensing what's there and deciding whether or not to germinate. Yeah. So holistic grazing. Uh, can you describe if you decided you wanted to bring in grazing animals as part of one of your rotations, what holistic grazing is and how it works? So first of all, I think consent is really, really important. And so sometimes I'm, I appreciate the results of regenerative grazing, but I'm not nuts about the model of you know, owning a bunch of cows and selling them and, you know, treating them like a commodity. And so I think we really need to shift away from that. But, um, and that said, there are some folks who are working with cows and goats and horses in a really beautiful way. So I think it's doable. And I'm really interested in figuring out how to do that more and how to teach that. So ruminants, 
which are basically, I mean, you can spot a ruminant because they have two toes. And so they have this other organ, the rumen, that's full of bacteria that um, breaks down plant matter in a totally different way than horses do. And so horse poop and cow poop is going to be a different type of inoculant, and you want both. So basically, the way that you want to introduce large grazing animals to the system is um, in like a what they call mob grazing, or basically the idea is high intensity, short duration. So you want to come in as if it was a stampede of buffalo who are being moved by by wolves who are you know following them for for months across the plains, and so the buffalo don't want to spend too long in any one spot, and so they come in for a few hours or a few days and ideally take one bite of most of the plants and they trample about 50% of the plants. So a lot of what's happening in that grazing situation is not so much grazing, but trampling and just getting the, um, the cellulose and the, you know, the wood from, from bushes and stuff onto the ground where it can decompose. And they're also urinating and defecating and trampling that in too. I think that's quite important is that you're getting a lot of recycling and you're getting the bacteria from the rumen. Yeah, you're getting this inoculation from, you know, the bacteria that and fungi who come through their guts and then that fall off their hair and come with the birds that follow them. And so we're also getting diversity from other ecosystems that they've come from. So you have to have the right number of grazing animals and you have to be able to move them around an amount of land that's going to be big enough that you don't have to come back until you've got more grass, which will change. And are you building a community-supported agriculture system where whatever you grow goes into the local area? Because that's one of the big things we're doing here is trying to get reach people by going, would you not like to eat food on land that you could walk across, that was grown on land you could walk across? Does that work where you are? It does. We have a really robust farmer's market situation throughout New Mexico. And then we're also interested in doing CSAs, you know, so community supported agriculture where people can can pay and can also come volunteer or put in some time, get a box every week. And we have found during lockdown, loads of people wanting to volunteer, partly because it got them out of the house, but then discovering that there was a sense of meaning in growing food that they did not have in their office job and really not wanting to go back to the bullshit jobs that they were doing before when there is an alternative or could be an alternative of really being part of something that feels so primal as as growing food that people can eat. Are you finding that at all? Yeah, definitely. And I think that this model of, you know, just scattering lots of seeds and we'll sort of keep track of, you know, we put these these species out on this terrace and in, you know, in our DNA, we're foragers and we have this dopamine system that really works well for finding little pleasures and then searching for more. And we feel, you know, compelled to search for more and it gets really, really fun. Yeah. You get your dopamine hits from that instead of Facebook and Twitter. Yeah. So much healthier. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I mean, people, people love it. So final question, and this is purely my thing. I have also watched various YouTube videos about the Johnson Sioux bioreactor. So this is David Johnson and his wife who've created something that I 
definitely works in New Mexico. I keep thinking about building one here and thinking, I'm not sure it's going to work because it is very damp and cold here. But it's essentially a tower with mesh on the outside and a very specific ratio of pipes through the middle. So it's you get oxygen everywhere. So it's a well aerated, it's an aerobic system. And in the beginning, he said he used to fill it with all kinds of exciting things like, you know, cow dung and hay and straw. And now he just puts leaves in it and he leaves it for a year. And by the end of that year, he said they were getting bacteria that they hadn't seen for over a hundred years. They were getting bacteria that could eat through gold. They were getting an extraordinary bacterial biome, which if you then spread it on the land at the rate of, I think, a pound per acre, would utterly revitalize dead soil, which sounds so exciting. And and I love the idea of getting bacteria that you haven't seen for over a hundred years, but because you live in the place where David Johnson is doing this and you probably have greater knowledge, are you also getting fungi in that system that you are then broadcasting on the soil or is it just a kind of bacterial kickstart? No. So the Johnson Sioux bioreactor is my favorite, favorite compost and it's really fungal. It's got great fungal biodiversity. Very, very fungal. Oh, interesting. So thank you for sharing such an extraordinary wealth of fascinating information. If everybody listening to this were able to, in some way, help a local community-supported farm become more regenerative, then we would begin to transform the world. And I think for people listening, knowing that it is possible to build soil and draw in carbon from the atmosphere so that farming becomes carbon negative instead of a huge, huge source of our current carbon excess is a real incentive for everybody to get to it. And you produce food that's alive and and so much better for you than anything that you could get that's been in an industrial farming system. One of the one of the other factoids that Dan Kitteridge produced was that most vegans these days have to take cobalt supplement um, because for vitamin B is it B twelve I think, and that we should our plants should have enough cobalt. It should be perfectly possible not to need to take supplementation. It's just that we've never let them get to the point where you've got the systems where the roots are able to gather the the cobalt up that they need and the boron and the magnesium and the manganese and everything else that they need. So we can just produce food that is actually good for us instead of the kind of empty pulp that we're producing in the industrial systems. I think this is a good idea. Navona, over to you for final words. Oh, I'm I'm really excited about regenerative farming, regenerative ecology, because I think that our society is going to change so much as we start to shift this way, not just in the way that we grow food and relate to land, but also just the idea of having populations of humans who can really reach their full capacities and full potential spiritually and emotionally and physically because they're well-nourished with all these micro and macronutrients. And imagine what we can do and we can really use our whole systems, our brains, max potential. Yeah. And when we're an integral part of the web of life instead of constantly battling against it. Yeah. And I think that there's going to be some momentum. Like we're in this early phase of sort of pushing this boulder, but as more and more people start to do it and more and more people start to eat this nutrient dense food, 
um, I think that it's going to really take off, especially because a lot of our decisions are based on our intestinal flora. You know, our gut bacteria and fungi are the ones who are dictating a lot of our choices. And I think that once we are eating from these biodiverse systems and we have those voices inside us, that we'll be drawn to it even more. That's such an interesting idea. One day we're going to do a podcast just on that. But in the meantime, thank you so much for coming on to Accidental Gods. And I hope your new farm is absolutely abundant and flourishing and wonderful and soul healing. Thank you. Thank you so much. So that's it for another week. And for this year, huge thanks to Navona for bringing us such a fertile, expansive, inspiring vision to carry us forward into 2021. If we are going to create the more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible, then finding new ways to relate to the land and to the growing of food is going to be absolutely key. And because we do want to find the more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible, we are going to be holding an online gathering on Saturday 2nd of January called Dreaming the Year Awake. Our aim is to create a space where each of us can look deeply inside to the core of ourselves and connect to the web of life and thereby find what it is that we want to be and do. What it is that only we can be and do. How it is that we can bring the best of ourselves to 2021. We will hold meditations and guided visualisations and there will be time in small groups in the breakout rooms for you really to sink deeply into the core of yourself, to ask the questions that matter most to you, to hear answers that feel authentic to you, and then to put the plans in place to set the habit patterns, build the body groups, do whatever it is that you need to do so that you can live the coming year in a way that does connect you to the core of who you are, that brings authenticity and integrity to everything that you do, and where you can hone a clear intent and keep it bright throughout the year, whatever else happens. So the logistics, it will be on Saturday 2nd of January. It'll run from 10 o'clock till 4 o'clock, local time to us, which is GMT. There will be a lot of breaks. I am not going to ask anybody to stare at a screen for six hours solid without many breaks. And yes, it will be on Zoom. So as long as you're in a time zone that's vaguely compatible, then please come along. And if you're not, and there are enough of you, then we can run it again at a different time. The cost is £65. If that is problematic, then as ever, please do get in touch and we will sort something. The details and the booking link, the thing that you will really need, are on the events page of the website. So go to accidentalgods.life and then click on the events tab on the top bar and that will take you to where you need to go. This is aimed at everybody. Whether you are new to this work or have been with us for the past year or have been doing something similar for a lifetime, it doesn't matter. Everybody is welcome. No experience is needed or expected. Please don't think you have to have read something or listened particularly to something before you come along. Totally not necessary. If you have experience, then obviously that'll take you where you need to go. But if you know somebody who's interested in exploring this kind of work 
and just hasn't got around to starting, then this is probably as good a time and a place as any, so send them the link. And that's us done for this year. Thanks, huge thanks to Karasi for production, to Faith for the website, and as ever to you for listening. Have a wonderful Hogmanay, or if you live anywhere other than Scotland, have a good new year. We will see you again in 2021. Thank you and goodbye.